You're listening to the 21st Century Guide to the New Testament series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We've been going through all of the books of the New Testament so far. We've got through most of them. We've got about five left after this one. And I'm looking forward to, to 1 John, and then I'm, I'm really looking forward to 2 and 3 John because I feel like it'll be an opportunity to get into a book where you can really dig your teeth in. Right now, we're kind of scratching the surface of everything. But 1 John is another long enough book, but it's a good book because it's very focused. John has a very clear purpose in mind. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson tonight. Father, we thank you for this night, Lord. We thank you for believers that can open up your word. Lord, we thank you for the fact that it is something that we can trust. And as we look at 1 John, we'll see how important truth is and how you are concerned with truth, Lord. You're concerned that your people know truth. And, and more than anything else, Lord, that we know truth about who Jesus is, about why he came, about what he did. And so God, I pray you'd help us tonight to be um, encouraged of those truths, to be, have them reinforced in our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray we'd leave this place uh, with a desire to love you and love others like we're supposed to, like we're commanded to, and to live the righteous, pure lives that you would have us to live. Um, we love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not very often that I begin a lesson showing off my Latin language skills. There's a reason for that. It's because they do not exist. <laughs> but I chose for the subtitle of this book, Bona Fide, or Bona Fide Believers. And many of you know that that is a Latin phrase. That bona Fide literally means good faith. And so this is good faith believers. What is a bona fide believer? And that's what we're going to get into this evening. Um, John writes about what it means to be a good faith believer, what it means to be authentic, a genuine believer. And it's one who places their faith in the right place. We'll see that. Uh, Martin Luther said of 1 John, he said, this is an outstanding epistle. It has John's style and manner of expression. So beautifully and gently does it picture Christ to us. So we will see tonight what the object of our faith needs to be. It's a beautiful picture of Christ and who he is, why he came, what he did. And then the second thing that it means to be a good faith believer is one who exercises their faith with sincerity. And when I say bona fide believers, the reason I called it that is because we use the word bona fide in two different ways. And the first way is, if you're talking about an object— you have a bona fide object. If, that, if we call it that, we would mean it's authentic. It, it's truly the real thing. But we also say that, it, that people can practice a bona fide act, or, or in a legal term, uh, it's, it's a, a, an act of good faith. What does that mean? Well, usually it means that they were sincere, that they were honest in their action. And so when I'm talking about a bona fide believer, I'm talking about somebody who has their faith placed in the right object, but who is doing it sincerely and truthfully and honestly. And so it's in the right place, but not only that, they're doing it the right way. And when we're talking about this this idea of being a bona fide believer, when we're looking at the epistle of 1 John, what John is showing to us is where our faith ought to be and what we should look like because of that real authentic faith in us. So let's look at the important information that we know about 1 John. First of all, the author was the Apostle John. Okay, we all take that for granted, we know that, but the truth is, 
within the book, there is no internal evidence, direct internal evidence, that says John wrote it. Um, in Second and Third John, he calls himself the elder, but he never names himself by name. So why do we believe that it was John the apostle that wrote it? Well, we, we believe that for a couple different reasons, and I believe they're very compelling reasons. The first one is historical. Uh, we believe John wrote it because we have men like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandra, Alexandria and Origen and Tertullian and many of the early church fathers who said that it was John that wrote it. And on top of that, you don't have anybody who claims that anybody else wrote it. And so even though it doesn't say right in it that John wrote it, it's really, it's not something that anybody argues about. Everybody understands, they agree that John wrote it. The second reason is because there is a lot of indirect internal evidence, meaning there are a lot of phrases that John uses, a lot of comparisons that he makes, like light and darkness, that he makes all throughout his gospel, and he also makes all throughout the book of 1 John. And so when we look at the language and we look at his style, it's very clear that John wrote the book. Um, Now, John is a wonderful character. We we spoke about him a little bit when we looked at the gospel of John as the author there, and we will probably speak more about his character and who he was and what he was like next week. But I figured because 1 John is the longest of the books, we could leave his character out till we get to one of the shorter books because we have a lot to cover tonight. The date of the book was probably A.D. 85 to A.D. 90. And so he wrote it. He was probably the last living apostle at this time. Uh, history or tradition tells us that during this time, about, for about the last 20 years or so, he would have been the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And it's in about A.D. 90 that he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And that it's there that he writes the book of Revelation. And so most likely he wrote this book sometime in the late 80s AD. The audience of the book was believers. Now we, most of the books that we have, most of the letters that we have are written by somebody like Paul and they, they follow a very formal Greek style of writing where you introduce yourself and then you introduce who you're writing to. You say very clearly who you're writing to. And John, as we see, as we go through this book, we'll see that John was a very simple man. I, I mean, the Greek in his book is very small. It's a very simple book. Now, that doesn't mean it's not incredibly profound. It is incredibly profound. His truths are wonderful truths. But if you take any, any Greek course, if you start any Greek course, the first thing they'll do is pull out the book of First and Second and Third John and say, hey, listen, let's study these books first because they're the easiest for us to get. He's a very simple Greek. Uh, and when he, he doesn't really follow any type of form or any, he just doesn't have that education. And so when we look at what John did, he doesn't introduce himself like he's supposed to. He doesn't introduce who he's talking to. Why? Because he's not concerned with those types of things. What he's concerned with is he has a really important message to get to these people. And even throughout the book, you'll find that he doesn't have this awesome, clear outline that we can just follow, that he seems to have like three themes on his mind, and he just jumps from one to the next, to the other, to the next, and back. And, and it's really hard to just say, here's an outline. So I have an outline here for you that you will look at in a second, and I can tell you, you can probably just not worry about it because you can't really follow it. It's just, I picked three simple things that are said at some point, and then he jumps back and forth all the time. But I say all that because I think it's important for us to know that that John, he was a guy that God chose to write this wonderful book, and it's a, a book that's good for all believers. But he chose to write it through a man who had a very simple knowledge of how letters were supposed to be written and very simple understanding of, of the Greek language. 
But God chose John to write this letter, and it's an incredibly important letter. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. He's very clearly writing to believers. In 1 John 3, 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And then in 1 John 5, 13, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm writing to those that already believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to believers. Very relevant for us. The purpose, and this is where we'll spend most of our time tonight. What was his purpose? Why did John decide to write a letter? What did he feel was lacking in these churches or what was a problem in the church? What is he addressing? The purpose here is to provide clarity on key Christological doctrines, so key doctrines of Christ. He's, he's providing clarity on them. And he provides assurance of salvation so that believers can find joy in having a bona fide, <laughs> had to fit that in there somewhere, a bona fide relationship with the Father and the Son. So what is he doing here? He's writing a letter because he wants them to have very clear understanding of Christ, who he is, what he's done. There is nothing more important that we can know than to know who Christ is, to know why he came, to know what he did. So he writes because he wants them to know that clearly. Why? Because presumably there is an attack on that. Um, Back then, there was something called Gnosticism. Now, it was in its very, very early stages at this time, but we see Paul seeming to address some of these problems in his letters, and it would be even more mature in, in in what Gnosticism eventually became when John is writing. And so he's writing because what the Gnostics ultimately did is that they challenged who Christ was and what he did and, and what he came for. See, what Gnosticism taught was that, that all matter was evil. All flesh was evil. Anything that, that has a physical presence, that, that those things are evil. And all spiritual things were good. So spirit, good, matter, evil. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus could not have fully become human, Right? Because if he did, he would be taking upon himself something that is evil. And so they taught that what Jesus did is, is either one of two things. Either docetism, which is they taught that he seemed to be physical when in reality he wasn't. So it was just perception of a physical body. Or they taught, the, the, other, the other guy, is, it's named after a guy, and what, they, what he taught was that um, Christ was the God aspect, and Jesus was the human aspect, and at Jesus' baptism, Christ came to live on Jesus and left him just before he died. And so what they were trying to do is they were trying to somehow make sense of the fact that matter is evil, that spirit is good, and, and so they were distorting who Jesus was. And so we see, we see John's response over and over again to this heresy. He said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, Hereby you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, and, and so you're saying that you like spirits? You like the idea of some spiritual thing? Well, this is how you'll know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. See, he's, he's combating what they were teaching. 
the false doctrine they were teaching. He says, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Wherefore, ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. And this is interesting. John, what is he known as? He is the apostle of love, right? I mean, that's how we know him. He was the one that Jesus loved. He's the one that, that is so loving. He uses the word love over and over again in this epistle. But here's the guy who's willing to call somebody an antichrist. And why? It wasn't even that they denied the deity of Jesus. It's that they denied his humanity. They denied he became fully human. See, when you mess up Jesus, you mess up this doctrine, you mess it all up. You become what he calls an antichrist. Later on, he'll call you a false prophet or from Satan. It's a big deal. And so this man who was the apostle of love had very harsh words for people who messed up the doctrine of Christ. He said in 1 John 4.15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. In 1 John 5.10, He that believes on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believes not God hath made him a liar, because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. See, it's all about Jesus being the Son of God, but being fully human. 1 John 5.12 says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He is so concerned in this letter that we know who Jesus is, that we know he's the Son of God, that we know why he came, and that we know he was fully human. You realize that if Jesus isn't fully human, then his death on the cross didn't mean anything. If he was just Christ coming on this body, this man Jesus, and then Jesus eventually went to the cross without Christ, Christ went back up to heaven, that does nothing for your sins. He is not the propitiation that John speaks about in his epistle here. And if Jesus obviously is only human, then, he, then his death means nothing because humans can't take away the sin of other humans. So Jesus was fully human and fully God. The other thing we see in this epistle is that true believers must practice righteousness. This is something we see. First of all, he wants us to be very clear about who Jesus is. The second thing he wants us to know is that, okay, if you believe that, if you have faith in the right object, then what does that look like? And he says, well, it looks like your life changes. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Verse 3 and 4 says, And hereby do we know that we know him. So how do we know that we know Christ? And he says this over and over again in this letter. Here's some of the marks of a true believer. Here's one of them. He says, If we keep his commandments, he that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's very strong language, isn't it? I, I mean, you'd almost think, now wait till we get, hold this thought a little bit, but you'd almost think from some of the things that John says here is that you're saved by your works. Now, wait, as I said, wait a little bit because he makes that very clear, but let's look at a couple other verses. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3, verses 3 to 10. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So you have the hope in you, you know Christ as your Savior, well then you purify yourself just because he is pure. 
Whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins hath not seen him, neither known him. Wow. Isn't that strong? Like, if you're living in sin, then you have not seen or known him. If you can abide in sin, I mean, just be stuck there and living there, and you don't know him, you're not in him, he's not in you. That's strong language. He goes on, verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. He's so simplistic in the way he puts things, but it's so clear and it's so powerful for us. If you live in righteousness, then you're of the righteous one. If you live in sin, then you're of the devil. He says, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. This is what I want us to get here, because we're going to answer the question, do we have to be perfectly righteous to be saved? Okay? We're going to answer that in a second. But what I want us to see, the, the case John is making, and I think something that we've lost in, in some churches, is the fact that there should be a marked difference between unbelievers and between believers between who you were before you got saved and who you become once you're saved. There should be a very clear difference there. And if there's not a difference, and there's not change, then you have reason for concern. We make a lot of things very, very complicated in our lives. Like, like yes, we have the flesh, we battle the flesh, but we tend to justify our actions and our unrighteousness and our sin because it's hard and I have this flesh and it's difficult. And and John is just so simple in how he presents it to us because he wants the message to be crystal clear. If you're a believer, then quit living in sin. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to require sacrifice. It's not easy for any one of us. We all still struggle, but quit it. If you're a believer, it's so clear. You're in him. You're in the perfect one. You're in the one that came to take away your sin. So, so just get rid of it. It's not easy, but, but make every effort, every attempt, pursue righteousness. Now, for those of you who are like, okay, well, those verses sounded like I'm not saved. Because when I read those verses and I don't read this next verse, that's how I feel a little bit. I'm like, man, I don't have perfect, sinless life. I still struggle. I still sin. I still falter. I still have evil, wicked thoughts. I I still have problems in my life. So is John saying that Dan Christians is not a believer? I don't think he's saying that. And I'll show you why. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 5. And this is kind of how he introduces this this whole thing. 1 John 1, starting verse 5. He says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Okay, so he starts off in that, in that same place, right? God is light. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we live in darkness, then we're, lie, we're lying. Okay, we're not telling the truth. We're not in the truth because if we were in the truth, we'd be in the light. So he starts off in the same place. 
Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Then in verse 8, remember who he's talking about, right? He's talking to believers about their relationship with God. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That verse there has got to be the most encouraging verse in the book of First John. And it might not seem that way when you first look at it, but think about it. If he says all these other things and this isn't true still, that believers sometimes do have sin in their lives, if we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us, I mean, that's, that's part of this truth that he wants us to get. We need to pursue righteousness, we need to get rid of sin, but if we get to the point where we pretend like we never sin, like we act like we're perfect, then we've deceived ourselves once again because that's not the case. See, none of us are as wicked in our actions as the devil. Nobody in the world is. And nobody in the world, doesn't matter how mature spiritually they are, is as in much in the light as God, as righteous as God. It just doesn't happen. Okay? This, this is a process from darkness to light. And eventually, someday, we will be saved forever, saved completely, saved completely sanctified. When, when we see him. But until that day, we're all still battling our flesh. And so John's whole thrust in this is not to say, if you're not all the way light, you're not in him. His point is, you should be going toward the light. You should be getting lighter. And if you're not, and if you're just content to wallow in this darkness that you were already in, then why would you ever think that you had any kind of relationship with the light? That doesn't make sense. But if you pretend like you're all light, you're lying. You're actually the one that's wallowing darkness. Okay? If verse 8 isn't encouraging enough, look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, we're talking about believers. We're talking about fellowship with God. And if and when we confess our sins to God, that fellowship is restored. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I, I, I do this too, but I don't know why we always think that we've walked far enough away from God where he doesn't want us back. Where we've messed up, maybe in the same area as you did last week, again and again, and it feels like it's perpetual and, and just, you can't get rid of it. And you're just like, God must be disgusted with me. And, and do you know what the truth is? The reason we think that is because we're disgusted with us. And we're disgusted with other human beings that are like that right? It's disgusting to see somebody wallow in the same sin over and over and then pretend to confess it. And then that's not our God though. God loved you when you were at that worst point. It was at the height of your sin that he sent his son. And so why would we ever think that we've got past that point of him wanting us to come back to him and ask for forgiveness? We, we haven't. Now, I'm not saying throw up a prayer like, oh, God, forgive me. I'm going to do it again. But no, I, I think our repentance should be real. I think we should be honest um, in our repentance. But at the same time, I don't think we should ever reach the point where we are so sick of our own sin that we think we can't go to God. Okay? That, that's what God does. He is the great physician. And so he will forgive us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. And so John, he expects believers to pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness in your life. He also expects believers, true believers, to practice love. To practice love. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him 
is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. How do we know that we're in him? How do we know that we're, we're really saved, really believers? The love of God is being perfected in our lives. This is, this is a wonderful thing. If we can even, like we're going to look at a lot of scripture in a second. But we capture just this verse. The love that is coming out of us now is the love of God that is being perfected in us. What does that mean? Well, what was the love of God? How, how was the love of God manifested to us? It's on the cross, right? It's on what Jesus did for sinful people. And so that is what his love looks like when it's fleshed out. That love is now being perfected in us and, and, and apparently, supposedly, supposed to be flowing through us. That's the love of God he's talking about. So let's see what else he has to say about that. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. He's so clear, isn't he? Like, there's no, there's no gray area with whether you're saved or not with him. Okay? You should love the, bro- the brethren. Why? Because what is the love of God in you supposed to be doing? What did the love of God accomplish in the first place? Death for sinners, right? That, that's, that's what it looks like. Jesus dying for sinners. For yourself and for the believer sitting next to you. So the love of God being perfected in your life means you're loving the same person God loves. Right? And we have so much more reason to love that person than God does because we're just like them. They haven't sinned against us, and if they have, it's, it's, it's very little compared to the way that they've sinned against God. Okay? And we sin against God all the time, but God has never sinned against us. And so, if, when we capture, when we understand, when, when we're in the love of God, we start to understand what it means that God loves us, and we start to, where we should expect to see that love flowing through us to other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what he's saying, okay? 1 John three sixteen says, Hereby perceive we the love God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath the world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's, it's a really clear picture. If you have the world's goods, if, you, if you're wealthy, if you have money, affluence, and you see a brother or sister in Christ and they're in need, desperate need, and you, it says, shut up the bowels of compassion. It doesn't even just say you don't give to them. It, it says that your bowels would be the way we would refer to our hearts, okay? They're talking about your deepest emotions. We say hearts, they say bowels, okay? For them, heart meant your mind and your heart together. Um, for them, it was, it was your, if you don't feel for them, and if that feeling, if you, if you feeling that compassion for them doesn't lead to you giving to them, th- then you love them in word, but you don't love them in truth. Okay? You don't, you don't truly love them, and that's a problem. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's, let's love people. I mean, it, it's not a bad thing for us to sacrifice of our things for other believers who are in need. That is what is expected of us. First John 3.23, In this commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us the commandment. What he's doing there, and he, he spends more time doing it than I'm going to, but what he does there is he takes the two commandments, love God and love others, and he basically brings it back down to one commandment, if you love God, you will love others. That's, that's what kind of this letter is doing. Um, 
This is a commandment. If you want to do one thing because you're a believer, love God. And if you do that for real, you'll love other people. 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. Very large portion of scripture, but I think it's, it's very clear. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See what he does there? He's, he, he gives us a commandment, and it, it would seem like a very steep commandment, a very hard thing to do. Living your life loving other people, that's not easy. Okay? Love, very, very clearly in this letter, requires a lot of sacrifice of ourselves. But then he says, the reason that you should love is because, well, the only way you know love at all is because of the love that Christ showed you on the cross. That's how you know what love is. That's how he showed his love to you. And so I'm asking you to love not because it's going to be better for you because of what what God has already done for you because of the love he showed you. So you love other people. Verse 11, chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. And remember, that's the goal, to have his love perfected in us. And when we love other people, that's happening. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. Okay, that's, that's a pretty neat verse. This is how our love is perfected. This is how we know it's working, that's doing what it's supposed to do, because in the day of judgment, we can say what Christ was in the world, that's what we're trying to be. This is how we can know so strongly when we stand before Christ, that we are really standing for the judgment seat of Christ and not the great way from the throne judgment. This is how you know so clearly, because your love has resembled the love that, God, that Christ showed while he was on the earth. Verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You want to show you love God. You say you love God. The only evidence of that is how you treat other brothers and sisters in Christ. And and I think we can very clearly extend that to all the people that that God loves and he died for. But but I think in this letter, I mean, he's writing to these churches and he's saying, you guys got to love each other. Verse 21, And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. So, true believers must practice love. True believers must pursue righteousness. True believers must believe right things about Jesus. This is, these are the marks of what it looks like to be a true believer, to be a bona fide believer. And the wonderful thing is, finally, true believers will have joy and fellowship with God. When John starts at his letter, this is how he starts. He says, That which was from the beginning, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. There he's marking himself out as one of the apostles, as one of the ones that was with Christ, that, that saw him, that was an eyewitness, that, that touched him. 
We know him, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, why are we doing this? I mean, what is this all about? What is his letter about? What is the church about? What, what are we trying to accomplish in all of this? He says it in verse 3, halfway down. He says, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. We want, we're writing to you because we want to have fellowship with you, but not only that, I mean, even more than that, we want you to have fellowship with Jesus. We want you to have fellowship with God. We want you to have that right relationship because when you do that, when, when everything is right between you and God, that's when your joy is actually full. The joy that you are created to pursue. You know how we all do that? I mean, we all want to have joy. We all want to be happy. We, we're pursuing purpose. All humanity is. That joy that we were created for is finally found when we're doing these things. When we're found in Christ, in his love, and and showing his love through us, when we're pursuing righteousness, when we're true believers. John is writing because he knows how how we can have truly joyful lives. It doesn't mean just always happy and go lucky and everything's wonderful, but it means we have the true joy that we've been created for. What is the outline of the book? Number one, and like I said, this outline is, is not very clearly found in the book because he jumps around all the time. But number one, God is light, chapter one to chapter two. Number two, God is love, chapter three and four. And number three, God is life, chapter five. And these are just some truths about God that he's, he's kind of manifesting, he's putting on display in those chapters. Key verse is 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm writing it to you because I want you to be sure. I want you to have confidence and to continue to live a life of belief, of true faith in the Son of God. I want you to be clear about who Christ is. And I want you to live for him. The application, we've done much applying already, but... Um, Number one, have non-negotiable doctrine. Have things in your life that you believe about who Jesus is that are not negotiable, that don't change, that aren't going to change. In this letter, twice, God is referred to as the spirit of truth. Now, it's a letter, certainly it's been called the letter of love, and, and there's a great deal about love in it. But God reveals himself as the spirit of truth because he's concerned about us believing true things. He wants us to believe true things about him. Truth is not God, but God is truth, right? And so Jesus even said that he is the the way, the truth, and the life. Why fit that in there? Why not just be the way and the life? Isn't that enough? No, because he is the truth, and he's concerned that we believe true things. And so we need to have some things that we don't negotiate. One of those things is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Another one is that Jesus Christ is a propitiation for our sins, that he is, he, he is the ransom. He, his death on the cross is the only sacrifice for our sins. There are things about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is equal with God, that he has all the characteristics of God. All of those things we must believe. When you get Jesus wrong, you get it all wrong. So have things that are non-negotiable doctrines. Number two, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. And we see in this letter that means a couple things. You should have moral purity in your life. Okay, you should... You should as much as 
your flesh tempts you, you should be trying to get away from those base temptations that are sinful, um, get away from the darkness and into the light, be like God. And, and again, it's, that truth is founded in the fact that he has saved us, he's brought us into the light, so why would we live like we're children of darkness still? And so he says, pursue righteousness, but not only pursue righteousness in your moral purity, pursue righteousness in your actions. In, in, in not just like, I don't do these things, but have a list of, of right things that you do, right actions that you do for other people. And that point right there leads us right into practice love. What do we do? Number three, practice love. We love God. He says, what does it mean to love God? Well, one thing it means to love God is to not love the world. You can't say you love God if you love the world. John makes that abundantly clear in his letter. If I say that I love Tara, but then I love everything and I pursue everything that Tara is vehemently opposed to, then, I mean, if it's everything against Tara's character, how could I actually say I love Tara? Those things just don't coincide. They don't make sense. Well, if we love God, and, and yet we love everything that God's character is, is opposed to, then how can we actually say we love God? So he says, love not the world. When he says love not the world, it doesn't mean love not technology or love not um, forks or things that the world uses. It means love not things that make things of God look strange. Don't love things that are against God's ways. Don't love things that are against what, what God has revealed about himself and about his character. Don't love those things. And so we love not the world. When we love God, we also love what God loves. We, we hate the things God hates and we love the things God loves. He loves other brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves people. And so we love those things, and we, sh- we sacrifice for them like he sacrificed for us. And finally, number four, do it all because of who God is and what he has done. Do it all because of who God is and what he has done. All of this, I mean, what I'm asking, if, if this was a guy standing up in front of you saying, this is the best way to live your life, you could have a million reasons why I'm wrong. There's a million reasons why a life of self-sacrifice, a life of loving other people, is not the best way to go. But it all makes sense when you know what Christ did for you, when, we, when you know his love for you. Every command here is founded in what God is and what he's done for us. Uh, look at a couple places. First John 3, 9 says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Why? Because you're born of God. Because you're in him. First John 3.16, Hereby we perceive we love God because he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Why do we lay down our lives? Because God did for us. All of it is in God. We see that again in First John 4.10 and 11. We see it throughout the whole book. First John is, is, like I said, one of the simplest books of the New Testament. If his letter was handed in to a, a Greek teacher, they would have looked at it and said, you know what, there's a lot of things here you need to change. The form isn't right. There's really not any impressive language used. There's nothing impressive about this. And yet this book contains some of the keys, some of the most important truths for living our Christian life properly. God knew what he was doing when he picked a guy like John because he gives us this simple, clear, it couldn't be more clear truths so that we can live a life that pleases God. Incredibly profound, life-changing truths. Dr. D.E. Hybert said this, The forceful simplicity of its sentences, 
the note of finality behind its utterances, the marvelous blending of gentle love and deep-cutting sternness of its contents, and the majesty of its ungarnished thoughts have made First John a favorite with Christians everywhere. The plainness of language makes it intelligible to the simplest saint, while the profundity of its truths challenges the most accomplished scholar. Its grand theological revelations and unwavering ethical demands have left their enduring impact upon the thought and life of the Christian church. First, John is indeed a singular, irreplaceable gen among the books of the New Testament. It's almost ironic that there's this sentence that's so beautiful and so full of big words to describe this simple book. (laughs) But it is. That's where the book is. You can say wonderful, wonderful things about it, And at at its core, it's a simple call for believers to live like believers. Let's pray.